Where did you like to play as a child? I ask this question a lot because childhood memories shape us into the people we become. Welcome to Play It Forward, a worthy podcast. I'm your host, Lucas Ritson. Thanks so much for joining me. I talk a lot about play. I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm an educator, and I'm a playground designer. So I want to gather some of my favorite people who are advocates of children and nature and create a space to have an honest conversation about getting more kids outside. The power of play is very often underestimated and I think we all need a little more play in our lives. Hi and welcome to another podcast. Um, I'm sitting here with one of my favourite people from the early childhood sector, Lucy Cook. Um, Lucy Cook in a previous life was a teacher and she's found herself in this amazing place called early childhood development. Um, Lucy and I have worked on multiple projects together and I thought um, her experience, insight, community engagement, parent support and being that teacher and an owner in this sector would give you a great insight into um, where the sector is, what you can do as a parent and educator um, to support children. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, you're most welcome, Lucas. I always love chatting with you. We end up on 10 million tangents, but it's always super passionate. Yes, it could end up uh, for our podcast, but we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll cut that down for our listeners. Um, if you could give us a bit of background on how you found yourself in early childhood development, um, give our listeners a bit of context, that'd be awesome. Sure. So I did my teaching degree so I my specialist areas were physical education and science and during that time actually I um, was an educator in an early childhood facility uh, just doing some casual relief work while I funded my way through university and then when I finished I was qualified to do primary to year 12 um, physical education but I mostly ended up finding myself in the secondary sector and ironically my first teaching contract was a science one. Um, that was probably my first experience of having disengaged children <laughs> which was very interesting. I had a year 12 multi-strand science class. I spent the first half of the year uh, trying to get the children, to the young adults to come makes, to class. Makes me feel tired thinking about <laughs> science class. And the second <laughs> half of the year trying to possibly redirect them out of the class. So it was definitely a baptism of fire for a, a new graduate young female teacher. Um, but I did learn a lot about the education system and possibly what worked and what didn't work. And I'm really thrilled to say that uh, there are a lot more pathways for um, our um, older teenagers now uh, rather than just the direct school line. So that was exciting. So um, how I ended up here, I um, did a uh, – I was a PE teacher for quite a while in Toowoomba. Um, I was a coordinator there. And that was when I had loads of children, <laughs> four in four years, including identical twins at the end. Um, yes, I am freakishly fertile. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, And then following that time, I then became a head of boarding at a school up in Toowoomba also. So I did that for a couple of years. And um, during that time, my children were young and they were at a fabulous uh, kindergarten preschool. And um, one of them, well, the older one was also at a not so fabulous state preschool. Um, and the difference between the two was quite outstanding to me. So one had a brilliant, almost regio-like philosophy on the outdoor classroom. It was an old house, Queenslander house converted, just a two-room centre uh, where my four busy boys spent a lot of time outdoors um, probably loose parts play before loose parts play became a thing, yeah. um, getting dirty and muddy. Um, and my oldest son balanced that with two and a half days of state preschool at that time where the he was always in trouble. The teacher, um, I would often pick him up and he would say, oh, we didn't get outside today. They said we were too busy or they said it was too cold or – and I'm thinking in my head, they're just thinking it's they're too lazy. So yeah. <laughs> um, it was incredibly frustrating because he was definitely a hands-on child. Um, that was around the time where um, I discovered that um, he had um, Aspergis and now I have three of the four little Aspergians in my family, not so little anymore. 
Um, but it really opened my eyes to what I wanted as a parent um, from an early childhood facility and also what I thought as a teacher that children deserved. Um, and from there, my sister, Alison, who is also a teacher, and I um, got together and she said, oh, you know, I think we should... I think we should do a preschool or a childcare centre. Her, she is a music specialist and also a primary teacher. And um, yes, lo and behold, we searched for eight months and we found a rundown um, little centre which had had five um, owners in five years, but it had a wonderful backyard with trees and natural grass and looked out onto the floodplain uh, with hinterland views as I call it um, and you could see ducks and geese and things um, through the bars and I thought oh you know we could definitely um, provide the environment that I thought children deserved and that parents were looking for as well. Uh, lo and behold we had no idea how to <laughs> run a business. <laughs> Thankfully it all worked out for the best um, and uh, here we are, so nearly 12, 12 years later, yep, nearly 12 years later, and we um, have five, nearly five early childhood centres and um, six outside school hours care centres. So with the fifth, of course, you're doing Lucas, yes. the playground for at the moment out stay at Red tuned, Bank Plains. Stay tuned. It's going to yep. be pretty special, that one. Yep, bigger and better always. Um, none of our centres, as you know, are cookie cutter though. No. Um, they each are responsive to the community. So our goal is to embed ourselves in the communities we serve. So... Um, yeah, making them individual for the communities, the environments of families and children uh, who are there is very important to us. Yeah, so going back to, um, and I look forward to delving into your passion for Asperger's children and, and all needs of children, but what was it specifically that really um, lit the fire, um, pardon the pun, we'll get to fire starting as well, <laughs> um, that you saw your ch the change in your children and what age was it? where you started to see them engage more in the outdoors? Um, I think even right from the beginning, um, we were always an outdoor family. Um, I think myself as a child, I liked to play. Um, uh, my mum said that the first thing I would do was um, run outside, climb up the treehouse, and I spent most of my time with the boys because um, it was quite stereotypical or back there. But... Yeah. Um, uh, she said, I used to wear a yellow jumper and yellow tights and that was it. And I was the little yellow duck in the songs <laughs> um, that we used to sing. And I would spend my time outside. And then the rest of the time I would spend it jumping off the highest monkey bars I could find to hit the ground. So it's no wonder my children were outdoors children. Yeah. And as I said, when they were little, um, crying's always softer outside. So we <laughs> do a lot of walks. There's, there's a good takeaway yep. for you. Crying's yeah. quieter outside. That's right. So whenever you're having a hard day, just get outside, get somewhere, get anywhere. I would even take them to, because four un under four is very hard to coordinate, take them to a McDonald's playground just yep. so that they could get some outside play. Some, yep. some movement. And you come from a long line of educators, mm -hmm. um, your father being a headmaster and your sister, as you mentioned. So you would have a great insight to how you've seen the, the sector change over the years. So what's the biggest changes you've seen, the positive and the negative over the years? Yeah, what I am absolutely loving um, that I've seen in Australia, and I only fully realised this with my trips to the States recently, because I've been doing a lot of work over there in recent years, is how the early childhood sector has evolved from, um, I guess, a risk adverse um, environment to a more um, risky play, the concept that uh, risk makes children safer in the end. Um, has become widely more accepted. Um, people are thinking outside the box. Um, it is less, I guess, sterile. Um, children are able to be children a lot more. And probably most of all, uh, the difference I notice is that they are not many primary schools. Yeah. Um, early childhood is so much, so different from our um, early years in primary school, especially now with the demands of the national curriculum, etc. 
Um, so now our next challenge is to uh, work out how we best manage that transition between early childhood or even soften uh, the national curriculum, yeah. I think, so that we can incorporate. Because really up to the age of eight, I think children still need um, a nearly play-based environment yeah. or at least a hybrid of what we're bringing them through in early childhood. Yep. And you touched on earlier about where you played as a child. So thanks for answering <laughs> that question in advance. Um, but when it comes to that, we're, we're seeing a trend now and um, those parents coming through that actually didn't have that outdoor experience like you mm-hmm. had. So, so as an educator and owner, mm. and it's so important in your values, how do you get those parents that can't relate to that experience of being outside, but then create that bridge in saying your child needs it though. So mm-hmm. what's your... some? It's actually been really interesting. Um, we have, we expected a lot more um, controversy and not backlash, but just um, what parents, what we thought parents would want for their children was actually quite different. What we were hearing more of is... Um, that they now, it's almost come full circle, they now want an experience like they had as children though. They're still of the era where they could play outside, Um, they could get dirty. I think they've seen the negative impact of um, the screen time environment and a lot of indoors and they want more for their children. Um, They want a healthier lifestyle. They want, um, you know, their children to develop the skills that aren't just, um, you know, your basics, reading, writing, mathematics, but to do that in a way that um, incorporates and involves the outdoors. Um, They uh, develop a much better ability to problem solve um, and um, have a lot more um, ability to have team building skills and the social skills that are needed to be truly successful in early childhood. Yeah, and what are some of those things that um, you anticipated the backlash mm. of there being a backlash um, mm-hmm. but didn't, didn't eventuate? No, and I think, I mean, I would like to take a little bit of credit for that because I guess because we were prepared for it, we... Um, really focused on educating the parents from the minute and and the staff because they the educators have the message as well Um, so it needs to be uh, from owners down to educators Um, you need to be having the same message about what the parents could expect from our culture and our center and um, what uh, our values were and what we were passionate about and what we thought was important. And a lot of that is to do with the outdoor classroom. Yeah, so you mentioned how th- there is those elements of risk mm-hmm. and, and it is so important. So um, for our listeners that haven't seen the playgrounds or the, the work and philosophy of yours, what are some of those things um, that are implemented there? Um, So in terms of risk, you're seeing various scales of uh, height. Um, You're seeing um, the ability for children. They can uh, work at speed as well, so slow to fast height. Uh, Even the concept of um, having places for them to hide as well and be excluded. So um, I guess the risk there is in terms of them having that slight distance. uh, metaphorically and freedom. physically, yeah, and freedom, absolutely. Um, but there's been plenty of studies that have shown, you know, without um, children having uh, a changeable environment. So if you have a fixed structure and you have children that are always climbing it the same way, um, always um, utilising it in the same way, then they don't learn how to manipulate their bodies in other ways. So if they were to have a fall or something, they don't know how to manage manage that or manage their bodies. And there are a lot more, when children can't be exposed to risk, there are a lot more incidences of um, fractures and breaks actually um, because they haven't learnt how to use their body. Yeah, and when it comes to um, parents out there, that haven't had their children 
exposed to these experiences. What's some ways that we you find that um, some practical things that parents can do to activate that play that you've found? Because I know you support a lot of children and our listeners, listeners can apply that at their centres as well. Mm-hmm, definitely. Um, I think encouraging parents to be involved as well. So our tree houses, as you're aware, are able to be climbed by adults as well as children. Um, so all our educators, um, when they join our teams, need to get their certificate for climbing to the top of the tree house. And some of ours are nearly four metres high, um, which is quite a height. And they also have the ability just to be up there with them, sit up there and be still with them. And I think... Um, encouraging them without smothering or helicoptering them as well because they do need their own time to explore um, is a big part of that. So if you're hovering and always you know, using the word don't, don't do this, don't do that, watch out for this, um, you can ensure their safety without limiting what they're doing generally. Yeah, and it's not a very supportive environment for a child to be walking around in a constant state of like caution mm. and alert because you constantly don't or are you going to do the wrong thing? Because we're not seeing in a lot of situations, yes, you have a playground, but sometimes it doesn't seem to be owned by the children whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of those things we've incorporated into your centre that got quite a bit of publicity and stirred stirred things up a bit mm-hmm. was um, implementing the fire pit mm. in the centre um, and the challenges that faced and how it was on. It went into, I think, every paper, every yeah, channel. Yeah, it went internationally. My friend who was working in Afghanistan at the time <laughs> actually got the feed on the news as well and let me know. So it was, it was quite amazing to yep. see um, the interest in it, but exciting at the same time because I really I got messages from other early childhood facilities. Um, you know, how do you do it? How does it pass regulations yeah. is the big question. The regulation trap. Um, because people often don't realise, like I always advocate, ask the question, is it a regulation or a recommendation? Yeah. Um, and I also have a bit of a mantra that my teams know that anything is possible with a risk assessment. <laughs> It is. So, it is. Uh, and for our listeners yep. that don't know, the um, risk assessment is more binding for your practice than mm-hmm. a regulation um, for playgrounds because it's non-legislative and your risk assessment is legislative. So if you can do a really comprehensive risk assessment like we did for the fire pit. And with the team as well yeah. involved Everyone's and buying. engaged. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so when it came, a bit of backstory, when it came for the licensing visit and people being like, oh, how's this even going to get cleared? I recall giving the license, the education department, all of those documents, risk assessments, wind analysis and the procedures Mm -hmm. of having the fire pit. And it was quite funny. They looked at it all and went, you really thought about this? And they said, and they just walked straight away from it. And even, uh, well, even the funnier, the local um, authorities were fantastic and on board and engaged because they'd listened to the whole journey behind yeah. it and what you and we had done um, with the thought behind it. And then after it hit the media, um, it actually went to the national level and they came back um asking questions the national level of the education department yeah so i said to um of course they do it through our local department that i didn't actually get to talk to them myself but i said to our lovely um department officer i said what do you actually need here and they she wasn't even really sure what to ask me but because it had been in the media they felt some need to slap some sort of regulation or restriction or And I had a bit of a chat with her and um, she said, oh, um, do you have a risk assessment that's just specific to this element? And I said, we don't really do risk assessments specific for a toy or a, you know, it was for the whole environment as a whole. And the other thing I said to her was, um, you know, yeah, I just kept asking her, what what do you need for this? And by the time she understood the philosophy and what was behind it, and I think I did end up doing a risk assessment specific for the element that she was asking for because at that stage you're just like, okay, just tell me what you need. I'm going to do it. But as long as it didn't limit what um, 
the intention was. And I explained to her, uh, particularly with the fire pit, this wasn't a gimmick or a toy. It wasn't even something we were going to have out all the time. No. It was, um, you know, very purposeful. So it was six months. Yeah, did of it having the fire pit before it got used? That's right. It, it was you're not going to jump straight there. You're not going to go, hey kids, let's have a start with a bonfire. Yeah, it was very absolutely. intentional in the transitioning through. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, it was only if it was um, incorporated into the learning. Had someone been camping or something and had mentioned um, that they had, you know, something about fire or were we talking about uh, cooking in different countries? Or um, of course, there was a social aspect to it, and we we had we used it even for. Um, drinks around the fire we had staff meetings staff meetings not yeah. with children i might add yeah <laughs> but apologies yeah and parents um not with the children i'm talking about at night oh, no. good clarification there <laughs> um but it yeah it it wasn't that was important to me to let them know that it wasn't a gimmick or a toy it yeah. was something that was educational and um yeah, if, if it was a gimmick or a toy, it would sit out there all the time, throughout all the weather, yep. you know, to show off. But we actually use the environment that it's in, which is a beautiful, as you know, um, sort of large meeting or yarning circle type thing. Yep. We use it for so many different things yep. um, that the fire pit is actually just one part of it. Yeah, and for those oh, two parts, I'll start with this one. Um, for the, what about the parent feedback? You got was there any parents that were like what there's a fire pit again surprisingly um, less so um, I I can't even think of one at this point that had enrolled with us because it was explained right from the very beginning and we also talked about how we introduced it to the children like you know you talk about the respect of the fire and um, you know even with a candle in the room to start with. Um, and what they need. And, I mean, cleverly, as you know, Mike Van Dam, who sculpted the fire pit as well as one of the other pieces, he's a local and um, internationally renowned um, uh, chain metal sculptor, um, he created it out of stainless steel. So it's actually cool to touch. Yeah. Um, and it's shaped um, like an outward funnel. So the fire is in the bottom and the top of it actually keeps the children a little bit away from it anyway. So 100%. like with the rest of your beautiful playground design, it is intentional. So yep. yeah. And, um, and from the very start, we were having a lot of conversations with the media about this is not the first fire pit that's no. in childcare. It's been happening a long time. Mm-hmm. And even to go further back from there, it's that fire experiences for families and mm-hmm. for children have been happening since the dawn of, mm-hmm. of man, essentially. Um, so it's not this, it's not a big thing. You no. Know? And um, if you want to find out more about um, a few challenges faced, listen to a previous podcast, um, Angus Gurry from the outside as he goes into mm-hmm. does a great example of how we regulate um, we'll, we'll allow children to go surfing in a group of 15 but the minute you pull out a fire everyone freaks yeah. out and you go hang on what's more dangerous here yeah yeah um and for those educators that wanting to start using fire as mm-hmm. experience we're obviously at this point in time at this podcast it's mm-hmm. summer and there's uh complete fire bans yes. so we won't be doing any fire and bits. as part of our risk assessment we do look and see what the fire, yeah, fire warning rating. is as well yep. so. prevailing wind direction mm-hmm. to so it's not blowing into yep. the neighbors um that is starting to answer my question is like for those educators wanting to do a fire where do they start mm-hmm. from from uh, like a application um center standpoint yeah well i think i mean as we talked about there is um there's no regulation that says you can or you can't. You don't need to apply to anyone to do it. But what I would suggest is um, probably to start, uh, I would start right back at the environment level. Think about where you um, are, are going to do it. Is it um, in a bush kindy setting in which you would need, of course, um, to check out your local parks and wildlife and what the regulations are? Um, but start small, start very controlled, start with a candle in the classroom and then build up from there. Start with small groups, um, 
but really also start communicating with the parents and the families at an early point. You can't just spring these new ideas on them because without the education behind it, um, people get nervous. Uh, what they, yeah, what, when they don't know what's going on and they, d they don't know the rationale, um, then the first response is a little bit of fear. So, yeah, um, yeah. and of course, um, in the planning stages, you will need to do that risk assessment that we were talking about as a team, um, thinking of all... And even, I mean, I'm a big advocate for getting everyone involved in um, policies and risk assessment, and that might be um, a parent representative. It might be talking to the children about... If we were going to have a fire, where would we place it? If we placed it here, what would that mean? Is it too close to the play equipment? You know, what could happen if? That's always a good yeah. question for the children. And then you've really got everyone engaged. And I think that's where the safety comes in, where everyone is on the same yeah. same plan. Um, you mentioned earlier that you've got three or four boys with Asperger's and I know it's a huge priority in your centres to support all of your community. Mm -hmm. So how do you do that from a loving way for children that might be higher needs? I think it's, um, first of all, that they're, they're all individuals, even children with um, autistic spectrum disorder, all they really have in common is the diagnosis. Yeah. Um, so looking at each child as an individual and um Working, um, if it's in, say, uh, after-school care and you're working with the school environment, having that connection with the team surrounding that child, so having the parents um, engage with you, having the school engage with you, and likewise in early childhood, um, having those who are working with the child. Um, I know we recently had a meeting at uh, one of our centres and... Uh, the child's going to school and we had the principal there and we had um, the therapist there and we had um, uh, the inclusion support worker and the NDIS caseworker. So we had a cast of thousands. Um, but at the end of the day, um, as my director said when she opened the meeting, you know, we are all here for this child, um, you know, wanting the best outcome for this child and... Um, and uh, I think that's the most successful approach with everyone working together rather than in isolation. Yeah, and, and being a mother, just um, ask you to flash back to those times where you are mm -hmm. trying to get your children int integrated into care. What are those major things that an educator can do to help a parent feel more supported about their child? Because there's a lot of stigma, expectation mm -hmm. around that child engaging successfully. So what's some things that educators can do to support families? I think first of all and um, first and foremost is understanding. Um, have um, a level of, whilst you may not have special needs children yourself, but having that level of understanding that, um, you know, uh, if the parent comes in and they're frazzled or having a hard day, um, you know, doing whatever you can to try and make that parent's life easier, I think is a really key, key point. And that might be just um, asking them what they need for a start. If their child's having a meltdown because they're walking through the door. We had a child um, who, uh, you know, with fairly complex emotional regulation needs and um, they came through the door and they didn't get to press the keypad on the door which was a routine and a ritual that they normally did but I think mum was in a bit of a hurry um, and they were having a meltdown um, and so our, sometimes you just got to pick your battles and our director's like um, you know that's fine go back out <laughs> let's start again Let's, you know, whereas mum was sort of like, hurry, 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 you know, let's yeah. go. I mean, it's easily, it's not a criticism of mum at all, but um, it was uh, able for the director to think outside the square and think, okay, you know, what's really important here, um, you know, if this is what's going to make this child's day easier, go press the buttons again. Really, it's not a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. And I love what you said there about uh, routine and ritual. I was mm. just um, speaking at conference the other day and it came up that, um, to define a, a routine is something you can do consistently and a ritual is actually a real experience with 
with depth and meaning behind yeah, it. Yeah, importance. And mm-hmm. I know you do that a lot. So how important is routine and ritual? Because they're both equally important. I'm not saying one's better than the other. Yep. So how some examples of, I know, a point you're very passionate about. Yeah. So how do you implement some of these routine and rituals to help the children feel more safe and secure, emotionally connected? Um, I think um, it really comes back to... Um, the early years learning framework, uh, we're talking early childhood here, um, the being, belonging and becoming. So um, seeing that child as an individual and learning about that child will ensure that that child feels safe and secure and has a place in your centre. And inevitably, I think, and those connections, of course, that will um, help assure that the day runs a lot more smoothly. So some of the ritual things, as, a, as an aside, I was thinking um, that we do. Uh, so this year um, we completed our reconciliation action plan. Yep. Um, and so we have some lovely little rituals in the morning that are around our um, welcome to country. Um, and so they're important. And I was standing back watching our conquerors, which is our um, kindergarten age children. And it was so embedded that um, the early childhood teacher, Mr. Ben, was um, uh, not sitting back, but just allowing them to complete the ritual on their own. They were sitting in a circle, they sing a song, they um, say some words, and then they... Um, do a jingery handshake or a hug around two children, do it around the circle. And um, they didn't even need to glance at him really. It was just an embedded practice and it was something that I think made every child feel important and welcome every day. Yeah, that's awesome. And to flashback, I just sort of a question to help out our other side. Um, When it comes to the parents with high needs children, what can they do? for the educators to help the educators. So we talk about these um, equal relationships. So let's cast a view on what can parents do for the educators to help them help their children? I think the more we know about your child, the better. Um, And I say this in the kindest way and as a parent of children who have had additional needs, the good, the bad and the ugly. Yeah. Because then it gives you that understanding that if, your child is having a meltdown or some other um, behavioural issue for them or they're in distress, um, we might have some sort of understanding around what that child needs to, um, yeah, help them calm down. And um, because no, I I generally find none of the children actually want to feel like that or be like that. Children are lovely. They generally want to please people. So if they're in a distressed state, um, it's not usually they're choosing. They're not choosing to behave badly if they have additional needs. Um, So there's, I mean, you can talk till the cows go home, but if they are in that state, they're less likely to be able to be rational and understand. So it's up to you to help them. Um, either change the environment, um, change what's often, I mean, I'm talking ASD now, of course, having that little safe space that might be a little tent or a cubby for them to take some time, whatever they need at that point, um, just to bring them back down so that they can re-engage and come back to the group is really important. Um, I have had some families who are undergoing the challenges of um, assessment or trying to establish um, what additional needs their child has and um, possibly they have been um, bounced from (laughs) other childcare centres. It's not going to help us or the child by not being upfront and honest. And we try our absolute hardest to work with children. Um, Some children... um, need a um you know a more one-on-one style environment yeah um which means that sadly we're not always the right center for that child i always say if a child is in that much distress that they're um behaving in that certain way and i'm you know i'm talking about absolute meltdown in the room um 
it's not helping them and then it's it concerns me that it's possibly not a great environment to be in that if it's causing them that much distress but um, you know, we will access every avenue that we can. So inclusion support, um, again, like I said, working with the therapists and anyone else who isn't involved with the child to make it work for that child because we want them to go to school with the best chance of success. So. Yeah. And how do you deal with um, the... With, I've, I've seen it time and time again in the sector and it really, really annoys me how um, a child could be challenging, just have some behavioural challenges mm-hmm. and that's it. And all of a sudden you get the chatty whispers around the staff saying, oh, this child is this. Yeah, and this over-diagnosis mm-hmm. labelling. How do you deal with that? Yeah, that annoys and, me. and I find that they disengage too. Um, oh, we're not perfect either. The so educators I, disengage. Yeah, yeah. So once they make a decision about their child, not all educators. I have seen it like you though, yep. where they disengage with the child, and then it's a vicious cycle. Mm. Um, it's just continual education. Yeah. So having that understanding and learning, and um, I think having our great outdoors focus has helped a lot because. Um, so many times I've found that I've been able to distract a child from meltdown by yep. taking them outdoors. Or one of my biggest tricks is, oh, will you come and help me? I have to go down to the baby's room to do this. The yeah. come and help me approach works yep. really, really, really well. Chickens approach. Yeah, yeah. The, the chickens approach. All of that. Man, I um, can't, as children, an educator, right? Yep. The amount of times I'd check the eggs in the morning just to help a child feel safe and secure. Let's yep. go see if there's eggs for the 15th time. We go say <laughs> hi to the turtles too. Yes, Often, turtles. have you said hello to Sheldon today? We need to feed the turtles. So, yeah. Um, but that works for children who have um, challenging needs as well as regular children because, you know, separation is a real thing for children. Separation anxiety and, um, you know, parents going to work. It's yeah. unrealistic for us to expect that a child who's fairly new will just easily um, detach from their parent. And yeah. um, I know you talked about an experience that you had where um, early on where your child was, um, you know, you were leaving him Jules in care and yeah. he was upset as children are when they're yeah. first learning. Um and you said, you know, the expectation is until he has that connection with the educators, he will be upset. Yeah. So, and thankfully that, that came. So Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And he loves it, loves yeah. it now. But it was that initial uncomfortable period. Yep. To going back to um, the fear of diagnosis mm-hmm. um, and the fear of parents of a diagnosis as well. So maybe you could touch on and inform the parents listening what they should expect if those conversations are going to come up in the process Mm -hmm. the correct process for their child to get diagnosed properly not by a chatty club yeah by actually the system so first of all of course you know i am not a medical specialist um or anything and i would never diagnose um but i um from experience have got very good at recognising some signs that things um, might need to be checked out. Um, It is on occasion a very hard conversation to have with parents and I'm an experienced educator. Yeah. I find I'm a huge advocate for early intervention. Yeah. So one of the biggest frustrations I have is that it, for a parent who... um, doesn't seem to have any idea and let's face it when it's our first child we don't know what to expect we don't know what's normal what's not normal. i mean what is normal anyway but um we don't know if um it's a child's personality to just be like something or um so if from the first conversation that you have with the parent to a diagnosis if, if that was the way it goes it takes about 18 months. Yeah. So really, if you're looking at um, a child who's maybe two or heading towards three, that's pretty much just before they go to school that yeah. you finally get help. It's the half of their so life. So as soon as – I mean, I always had a man, a, um, a thought with my children that I don't really care what it is. We need help. Yeah. So whatever it is that will give us – the pathway to help my children become successful 
um, you know, and start off school in the best way, then that's what we're going to do. Just give me the pathway. And it's a huge, you know, it is really not an easy thing um, investigating or getting a diagnosis. Obviously, start with your GP or your child health practitioner. There are... um, Lots of great um, community centres and child health centres now that will help you if you think something might be amiss. Always go for your wellness checks and talk to your doctor about any concerns that you might have or your child health nurse. Um, But if your educators who know your child so well um, mention to you that it might be worth, um, you know, having a chat to someone about Please, please, please follow it up and don't delay because there are so there are so big waiting lists in Australia to see specialists that everything takes so long, and these these times these days are precious for what we can do with your child and how we can help them. Yeah. So you you mentioned like those huge wait lists mm. and this increased number of diagnoses essentially. Mm-hmm. What is your because you're the person to ask these questions. Um, what is this a just a matter of it becoming a thing because it's our social engagement it's our genetics changing or has it always been this way that is a really interesting question and i don't think i have a definitive answer on it i think we are definitely much more aware of um especially something like um autism Um, we are much more aware of um the science and the indicators um, and that I think that's a good thing because then we are able to help people earlier. So, um, I mean, there are plenty of adults out there who have struggled through school and life um, because they potentially could have got help um, had we been more aware of that. In saying that, um, and as a teacher we do need to take a good hard look at our education system and how we are meeting the needs for all children. I talked yeah. before about it not being as linear um, and there's a lot yeah. more pathways. Back when you and I went to school, it was basically you went and got your HSC or your TE score or whatever yeah. and then headed off to uni and that was it yeah. pretty much. Um, and now we realise, wow, that doesn't define success. So there is a whole lot of other different pathways and ways of um, getting to uh, a happy and healthy life than yep. just by going through higher education. Or It doesn't also equal jobs as we know no. anymore too. It doesn't equal well-being. No. Either. I mean, I'm sure you're not doing exactly what you started doing when you were straight out from school. Well, and neither no, am I. No, and, and that's a that's a thing when you you're put into a linear linear system and then you get pushed into the world that's like these non-linear lines. Yeah. And for me, like I love talking about this topic and getting your insight into it in a modern way, because when I was in early primary school, I was someone decided I had ADD because I rocked on my chair and looked out the window, mm-hmm. and. For me, that's why I'm interested in diagnosis. So you were a kinesthetic learner, do you I was a kinesthetic learner. (laughs) And hey, newsflash, I like to learn about what I'm interested in. And the minute I'm not interested, I'm not interested (laughs) anymore. And I've actually worked out how to, like, that's my learning style. And after leaving school, I could actually step into it and really research things that I'm really passionate about and go deep on. Mm -hmm. Instead of like, because the minute I'm like, this is not relevant, I'm out. I'm checking out. Yeah. Um, So... That's why I'm so passionate about it. And that's why I'm so passionate about the early childhood sector as well because we've got so much freedom within it that we can create and support all of these systems for each individual Mm. child in be it play experience from the fast moving to secluded to height to risk Mm -hmm. to fail. Um, And that diversity makes me so passionate about the um, sector. And that also makes me so passionate about what Amaze are doing. Um, And obviously from you've got this awesome thing of you being such a passionate educator mm. and mum with depth of experience and then you've got your business partner Phil who has the business yeah. background as well. Uh, yeah, I definitely think um, being an owner who is an educator has really benefited 100%. our centres yep. um, and that is something because we're hands-on, you know, I am there meeting the parents I know most yep. of the children um, and I I hope, I think that my passion 
for um, early childhood and education in general comes through to yeah. the parents. 100%. If I'm talking, if we get contacted by a client or potential someone involved in the sector that we can help and support and I find out they're, they're educators or teachers mm. before, I just get super, super motivated yeah. and um, inspired for them to mm-hmm. take this charge because we've got a and what you're doing is we're elevating the sector to a level that it deserves to be at. So mm-hmm. the all the mess can fall out the bottom or they mm-hmm. fall away to nothing or they've got to increase mm-hmm. their standards. And I've got to just thank you for all the mission you've been on with your five centres because by doing that, like, for example, we renovated one of your centres mm-hmm. and as we were finishing that build, there was a childcare centre next door and they were already renovating and upgrading their yeah. yard. And which that, is great. That, we're great changing outcome. the face of early yeah. childhood, which is so exciting. It's, it's such a bigger mission than just what we're doing with our children. But all children in Australia deserve that. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And that's why I'm so excited about it. Um, where do you see, to, before we wrap up, where do you see um, the sector and learning in that perception of the early childhood sector going in the next, say, 10 years? Where do I see it or where I, would I like out, to Lucy. see it? Yeah. Um, Both. I would <laughs> like to see um, – so we are already upskilling and um, wanting to raise the educational standard of our educators, which is great. Um, we haven't quite worked out um, the cost factor there. Yes. So <laughs> there's a requirement that we have um, educators skilled to a level, but um, we definitely don't want our parents and families paying the extra for the level, but our educators are worth it for sure. Yeah. Um, so I think um, there's going to be a little bit of pressure there on um, how that's all going to come about so we're requiring this certain level but how we're going to meet that need is um, going definitely going to be a challenge for the sector I think going um, on the way we've come from the last 10 to 12 years I th- would like to think we're going to continue on that growth and advancement trajectory um, really seeing uh, what we're doing as a profession yep. hopefully getting a uh, I mean, we are not one of the top educational countries of the world. No. Um, neither is America. They're a lot lower than us. Um, but why judge yourself off the bottom of the barrel? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, that's not in compa- comparison, but it just means no that... No to America, I might add. There's, oh, no. I've been there. There is amazing work going on. Oh, there's on, fantastic add, But there's things. a lot of challenges. Yeah. And I think um, because I look at them and see where we've come from. So I, I look at um, in saying that we are not one of the top, we have the potential to really grow and change our industry. But I think um, we're going to have to take a more global perspective on it. And um, rather than, I think, adopting um, the EYLF, um, you know, based on the Tifariki um, curriculum from New Zealand, I think that has shown huge changes in our industry. So I think advancing on that theme and, um, you know, with the advent of technology and internet, we have the ability to go more global. Um, I think... One of the most important things for me is that people don't stay in isolation. We need to be collaborative. Amaze has open door um, policy. Come see, chat. Um, yep. I love educational discussion. Um, Katie, who started the Gold Coast Educational Leaders Group down here, is having amazing discussions with our educational leaders. Um, and as an owner, there's only a couple of us owners that attend those. Um, yep. I am just loving hearing and seeing that talk. I love seeing people look outside the square, um, you know, challenging the status quo. Uh, we believe it amazes always a better way of doing things. So it's great when new educators join and getting their fresh eyes on why we do something. The um, yard you've just done at Hintland, the, there, that's the third time we've redone that yard in, um, you know, nearly 12 years. Yep. So um, I hope as a sector that we will continue to redo ourselves. So continue to grow and change and evolve yep. awesome. and get some global perspectives for sure. Awesome. And one final question to wrap up. I just thought to... Since you're at the forefront of this sector and have such great input, I'll pose that question I'll put to Finnish Education Minister. 
what's the most important thing for an educator to be? Ah, well, you've already covered some really good things. Um, you know, connection and heart too, I think is so important. But really, um, rather than saying to be, I think um, whenever we are making decisions, um, we put the children first. And I think if you put the children at the centre of any of the decisions you make, even at a corporate level, then you can't really go wrong. Yeah, there's a quote I love from Play Worker in um, the UK, and it says, it's not your feeling of being uncomfortable that should dictate your next move. Mm. It's the need of the child that dictates your next move. Absolutely, and that's why trying, and it is challenging, but trying hard to incorporate the children's voice in everything you do, um, yep. even the things that you think are just policy, procedural whatever, yeah. um, is just so important. That's awesome. Thanks so much, Lucy Cook welcome. from Amaze. Um, share with the people where they can find your content or what you've got going on. Sure. Um, so we have a very large Facebook group because we are one family. So we have all our centres under one Facebook group. That's Amaze Education. Our website is amazeeducation.com.au. And um, we are across um, all of the social medias from our Pinterest page and they're all called Amaze Education. Um, we also have our Amaze Education Jobs, um, which is our jobs network. And, and I'll jump in yep. there. If you're going to explore the sector, talk to Lucy. If you're even like you've been a good help to people of my For friends sure. that are interested in going into the sector mm -hmm. that have questions about yep. what they should expect and you're a great person to bounce things mm. off. Yeah, people are most welcome to contact us. I'm on LinkedIn personally as well. And I am the chief answerer of messages on our Facebook um, page, Amaze Education. Awesome. So direct you can really there. get directly to me. So, yeah. That's fantastic. I look forward to having you back in the future because one thing we didn't even talk about today was all the experience of an insight into going into the States and yeah. seeing what's going on there and the mm -hmm. programs and the development of culture, community and excellence in the sector. So mm -hmm. I look forward to talking to you about that next time. And also your exploration into the after school hours care mm. and amaze as well. Yep, our Bush Kids program. Bush too. Kids program. Um, yep. Can people look up your where they can find your after school hours? Yeah, um, we do have a new website coming, which is Amaze After School Care. Um, but at the moment, um, on our Amaze Education page, it's all our school care information as well. So, yeah, stay tuned. Brilliant. Thank you mm -hmm. so much, Lucy Cook. That's all right. Um, thank you for giving us the freedom to grow your playgrounds and give those um, experiences to children going on. Oh, and I thank look you forward for your to, inspiration. I look forward to um, seeing where we can, what crazy concepts we can come <laughs> up with in the future because we promise to raise the bar each time and we're getting there yeah. now. We have to go, all right, we've got to start thinking some other stuff. <laughs> so thank you so much, Lucy. And thank you for all the amaze um, childcare, that, that, uh, for all that amaze does for the early childhood sector. Our pleasure. Peace. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to the Worthy Podcast. Play it forward. Um, please like, rate, review, subscribe, share it with your friends. And uh, if you'd like to find out more information, all things Worthy, uh, worthy.co Instagram, worthy.co Facebook, and official Lucas Ritson on Instagram and Lucas Ritson on LinkedIn. Thanks so much for listening. Look forward to you joining me again soon.